She is a Philadelphia-based sexologist and sex educator who is redefining the narratives around sexually transmitted infections, or STIs. She received her BA in Gender and Sexuality Studies and is in the final year of her MSW-MED sex therapy program at Widener University. Firecrackers, please welcome Emily. Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. I am very curious to know, Emily, how you started doing what you do today. How, what motivated you? So my story is really interesting because I originally wanted to be a teacher. I actually wanted to be a second grade teacher. Um, and th that was something that I actually, when I went to undergrad, my major read education, elementary education. And of course, you know, I was taking my gen eds and I kind of learned about this whole world of feminism and sexuality and all these different areas of study that I hadn't really been exposed to. And I said, you know what, I think I'm going to change my major to undeclared. Uh, so that lasted for maybe a year and then I, I settled into you know I, I still want to help people I, I think I want to do therapy and then in a sociology class I found out that a sex therapist was a thing um, and I said I really think I would be a really great sex therapist sex educator partially due to my own experience my initial focus was on eating disorders and how that impacted uh, women who might struggle achieving orgasm. So just body surveillance. So that was my initial focus. And I had this whole plan. I was all set out to go to the current graduate school that I'm finishing up at now, which is surreal. But then I was diagnosed with herpes after I graduated college, which completely shifted my personal, professional, and other identities. And that is a short story of how I got to where I am and doing what I do. That's, I mean, there's just so many there that I want to ask you about. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. So there's so much I know. Yes. I mean, I, so you went, okay. So you went from wanting to be a second grade teacher and then seeing this yep. was it a sex therapist. It was it on your sociology class. Somebody came to speak yes. to you guys. No, it was, it was just um, kind of learning, reading different materials from, you know, whether it's research articles or in our textbooks. Uh, and, you know, I started to understand what a sex, ther sex therapist did. And I started to kind of understand sex's role in the media and how that had impacted my upbringing. It's also important to know that I was raised uh, in Catholic school from preschool to high school. So I didn't, my sex education was very poor, if any. Yeah. The guilt, everything that has to do with Catholicism is just... Oh, yes. Shame. Shame. I remember <laughs> when I was in, I think it was seventh grade, they had an abortion day at my school. And my mom said, oh, no, you're, you're staying home that day. So luckily, I didn't have to go to that. But everything else, it was pretty much sex is procreative. 
it's, you know, it was some lady with shoulder pads. I remember it vividly telling us that sex is between a man and a woman. Uh, you know, it happens after marriage, that whole spiel. Wow. What is an abortion day, by the way? So they had speakers come in and tell, I think they, they showed graphic pictures from what some of my friends said of what an abortion entailed right. in, you know, basically an abstinence only tactic to shame these kids into, um, you know, out not having kids, um, not having sex really. And I also later realized that in my quote unquote life skills class, we had, we had period tampon and pad checks. And so if we didn't have pads or tampons, our grade was deducted. And so I kind of later realized I was being punished for having a period and having uh, being a menstruating human. What? That is insane. And I I really didn't realize that until probably in the last four to five years. Wow. Wow. There's just, oh my God. So you you have this really, (laughs) this upbringing. I mean, I understand I come from a Catholic country, but I have never been like, I'm not Catholic. I don't go to church. Right. I respect people's beliefs and faiths, but I think that Catholicism is just, like we said, it's just based on shame and and guilt and everything around, um, you know, being this quote unquote perfect woman and honoring God and honoring your husband and your parents and whatnot. And it's a little bit, uh, it's anything but feminist. Um, Right. and, And then, and so everything you just told me is a little bit shocking. Um, but you also mentioned something that I didn't know, uh, and it was that there is a link between eating disorders and your sexual, is it, what did you say the word was? Is it? Uh, it might've been body surveillance. Okay. So is that, that, that has something to do with body image, like self-consciousness? How, how, what is yeah, that? So, um, more self-esteem and self-awareness. I don't have any research in front of me, but originally I was interested in how our view or, you know, women's, specifically women's views of themselves and their bodies um, impacted their sexuality, how, you know, whether that's with themselves or with their partners, specifically in the inability to achieve orgasm. Yeah, I think that's what you mentioned. So there is a link between eating disorders and achieving orgasms. Yes. How does that work? Uh, So it's, to me, it's very person dependent. And I think it depends on how an eating disorder manifests. Um, But I'll give you my example, because that's the example that I know to myself, and I'm comfortable sharing it. Uh, I was so uncomfortable and insecure in my body. Ultimately, I think, you know, similar to what we chatted about with Catholicism, these feelings of shame around sex and pleasure uh, you know, I really struggled to achieve orgasm alone and with partners. And especially with partners, it, it became a very nerve wracking thing. You know, like if I don't, if I don't orgasm, you know, what will they think? Or will I be seen as a failure kind of thing? That's very interesting. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I know a lot of people, especially women who have gone through um, some eating disorders or periods in their lives where they have suffered from eating disorders. Right. But I never thought that that could actually like impact. That there's a link. Yes, because I mean, I understand how that can be weighing on their own self-image, like their body mm-hmm. image and like not like their, the self-acceptance part of just being, you know, whichever shape you are, all shapes are beautiful. Right. Um, 
I get that, but I didn't actually, I never actually thought about how that would impact the sexual side, like your sexual life. Right. Having an active sexual life for those of us who choose to do it is so important as well. It's just, it's part of, it's just part of, I would say life and in a way even self-care. Right. It's part of being human. And I love that you frame it as part of self-care too, you know, whether that's, you know, being with yourself or with partners. Yeah, I think it's it's quite necessary because it's also, I mean, when you do it with yourself, it's also about getting to know your own body and it's also about getting in touch with that. I mean, this is the thing about being a woman in this world. There is so much that we're told that we have to do and there's so much that we're told that we can't do. And we're, there's so much that we are told that we have to portray or... Um, I was just going to say it's a performance. It's, you know, exactly. a performance, a role, and yeah. it's, it's a journey of finding ourselves truly. Absolutely. So, so then after that, you, before you got, you got out of college, you realized that you were diagnosed with herpes. I was. How did that change your perspective on what you wanted to do? Because you did say that changed everything, but I want to know a little bit more details. Sure. So like I said, you know, sex, I, I was on this path to becoming a sex therapist. You know, once in college, I realized that's what I want to do. And I had initially planned to apply right after I graduated to my university that I'm at now, Widener in Chester, Pennsylvania, which sits outside Philadelphia. And about a month after I graduated, I had this great internship that, you know, I was very excited about in diversity and inclusion, which kind of is becoming an outdated term as we focus more on inclusivity rather than um, inclusivity and equity, I would say, are more of the coming terms. But I had this great internship. I was very determined. I was very focused and confident after pretty much not everyone, but a lot of people in my life thought that my undergraduate major was kind of pointless. You know, I I had a lot of people say, well, what are you going to do with that? And so I was very excited to prove myself. And so then a month, you know, after I settled after college, I tested positive for herpes and my self-esteem drastically dropped. I stopped going to work and I, I actually emailed my supervisor and said, I can't come to work today because I got an STI and, you know, I'll, I'll come back when I'm in a better space, but I'm processing this right now. Wow. And so for me, it was not only dealing with these feelings of shame, it was a reflection of, you know, society tells me that someone with an STI looks like this, and this is me. And how do I negotiate that identity with the identity that I thought I knew that I was? Um, and it, it required a lot of a lot of really uncomfortable self-reflection, a lot of, um, I did use alcohol as a crutch, and I, I should have seen a therapist, and, but I didn't. And the reason that I didn't was because I felt, I said, how can someone ever understand what I'm going through? Because this is so secretive and so shameful, and I feel like I'm the only person in this world who has this. And right. it, was, it was in this reflection that I really had I spent so many nights researching on the internet, um, kind of going through my own mini library of books that I had, going on forums, seeing what other people were saying. And at the time, blogs were very popular. So I read a lot of blogs and just really absorbed myself in what I felt was becoming, you know, I was like, well, I, I guess this is my life now. I have to figure this out. And so through that, I became empowered to what I'm doing now is redefining the narratives 
around sexually transmitted infections, teaching people through a lot of unlearning, um, you know, that it's, it's not the scary thing. We've all just really been, haven't been taught at all what we should have been. And often our instructors even go as far as to lie. Like I said, with the abortion, you know, it's a kind of, it's a fear tactic. Yeah, absolutely. All rooted in shame. Mm. It's interesting because, um, you know, STIs, people really don't talk about them. This is the whole, this, the shame part is, this is a little secretive. I mean, people are like, they don't want to share. Uh, right. Have one, but it's just so common. And even with partners, you know, I find something that I think sex education classrooms should be teaching is, you know, how to have these conversations with our partners, you know, how to say, hey, I tested positive for this. This is what it means for us. Or, hey, I have this. This is how we can move forward together. You know, what about you? You know, we're not taught to really have those communication skills with our partners. No, absolutely. But th th that's the thing. It's about, you know, keeping it a secret. So it's better that right. nobody knows what I am, that I have an STI, even though they're so common. Um, and but that's, that's often, even research supports, you know, that's one of the most common reasons that people don't disclose is because they're afraid of rejection. Yeah. And, of course. you know, some people even reject that in themselves, denial. Well, well, when I was, I was thinking about, I was reflecting back on this, um, you know, since I was young, I, when I we start, we first started learning about STIs, I don't, I didn't actually learn a lot about them, to be honest. Neither um, did I. <laughs> <laughs> I. I didn't go to a Catholic school, but I do live in a, in a Catholic, I was raised in a Catholic country. So right. we did have a couple of sex ed um, classes, but it was just, I can't even remember what we spoke about in these classes. But the one thing um, that I do remember ever since I was very young, and this was between like among my, my peers, so right. teenagers and, and even when I was in university, is that STIs, if you had an STI, that meant that you were a slut. Yep. And that's the big takeaway. Exactly. So if you have an STI, it means that you've been sleeping around. It means that you're a slut. Nobody wants you. Nobody wants to touch you. Uh, you're disgusting. Dirty yeah. disease. Exactly. The whole works. Exactly. So that was, there was a link, right? That was the link that we right. formed in our, in our minds. And of, and of course it's not true. Well, that's, that's the reason why I love so much what you're doing. And I, I, I really want to hear more about how are you communicating all of, all of your knowledge and what is it that you do as an educator uh, specializing on STIs? Thank you. Uh, so I, it all started kind of writing. I, I was someone that had a blog and I started writing about this darkness. And I look back now and I think some of that was me actually processing what happened to me. Um, and I actually ended up going public with my diagnosis in December of that same year. So roughly around six to seven months after I was diagnosed. And that was propelled by a rather uh, painful breakup over a Snapchat text. No. And, yes. <laughs> oh my God. And you know, that's not the point, but it, it is kind of, you know, it, it speaks to our lack of communication and inability to talk with one another. Absolutely. Um, and I had a lot of anger towards this person. And knowing what I know now, I, I don't think that they knew they had herpes. I think, you know, given testing recommendations and screening guidelines, I think it was either, you know, mistaken as another STI or he just didn't know because the number one symptom of having an STI is not having a symptom at all. Um, but I, I actually publicized my diagnosis after 
that breakup, I, I, you know, I kind of told myself like, you know, like, what am I really doing here? Like this guy made me feel like crap. Um, you know, I've got this now, but I feel, I felt very empowered, that sense of empowerment again, to educate others on an, another experience that I knew myself. Um, and I, I really saw the need specifically through the lens of my own unlearning and re-educating myself and consuming different forms of resources, whether that's through TED Talks or blogs or government statistics and guidelines. And I have ended up turning a lot of my knowledge, you know, what I'm learning in school, what I've learned through myself, what I learned through other people in my field. And I am still very much engaging in reflection and unlearning of everything that society has taught us to believe about sex, specifically STIs. And I've kind of found this niche in making Instagram graphics and communicating that in a way that's friendly, non-confrontational, that people feel safe to even at some points share their status with me. I can't even tell you how many emails I receive or messages I receive from other people. And really just, you know, we, I speak all the time to, the, to this communication aspect and I think technology has a lot of faults, but I also think for something so stigmatized, it has the propensity to bring us together to create change that's meaningful and impactful beyond what any of us know. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we were just, before we started this interview, we were just discussing, I was um, telling you that I was actually going through your Instagram feed today. And I love how everything that you publish there is just, I mean, it, there are, of course, there's text on the images because there's a lot of people that don't read the captions on Instagram, <laughs> saying as well. But it's all, everything's just so useful. Everything is just like all this information that we, I think most people don't even take the time to actually Google it. Um, they don't, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so having that resource, I think it's actually very, very important for many people, especially Thank women. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I really do. And I, you know, you just mentioned you get a lot of like messages. I'm wondering what, what sort of, um, what sort of feedback do you get from people? So generally it's a lot of gratitude. Um, oftentimes people will share their stories with me and, you know, sometimes they, most of the time they resemble very much of mine, you know, this period of denial, you know, thinking, well, it's not herpes, it can't be herpes. And then this period where you're like, oh crap, like I do have herpes and kind of their story as it relates to rejection or disclosures or how they try to template and it worked for them or how a partner blew them off or ghosted them and they said, you know what, I don't need you anyway, which is also really cool to read and know that I've impacted them in that way and empowered them through that. Um, I also have had a lot of experiences in creating boundaries so that I can continue to show up in the space the way that I do. And sadly, I've had to, I never thought I would have to say this, but I had to say, you know, please don't send me pictures of your genitals because I have gotten people that just send me straight pictures of their genitals asking wow. like, is this herpes? Um, and I, I know that it's because of the safe space that I create. And I think I, a lot of people feel entitled to access. And I think because I talk about this in such a non-confrontational and friendly open way, I, it comes off very, you know, I come off as more of a friend and a teacher rather than you know, perhaps a medical clinician who might have a colder bedside manner, but 
there's a real need, I think, to bridge the gap between sex education, sexuality professionals, and clinicians, because they receive, you know, there was a study, I forget which study it was, but they receive around less than 10 hours of human sexuality knowledge throughout their time in med school. And obviously that varies per programs, but generally speaking, that's all there is. That's and that's nothing. not going to cut it. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's very, that's, that's ridiculous. You would think that they would have more tools. And I, you know, I get people all the time that say that their doctors, um, even nurses participating in STI stigma, you know, saying, I had someone tell me, they're like, well, you should have worn a condom. And I'm like, what do you know? Because you can get an STI even still wearing a condom if it's spread through skin to skin contact. Oh my God. I was just going to mention that. I was just going to mention that because you did. We're on the same page. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Like, because you did did say, you did talk about creating that safe space. And, and the first thing that came to mind is, I mean, sometimes you get, you get this kind of comment from even like medical professionals. Yep. You know, and that's just, that doesn't serve anyone. I mean, I'm not here for you to judge what I did or didn't. You don't know what happened. Exactly. Um, and how much help. of that matters? Exactly. It's not enough for their business anyway. And especially, uh, the, you know, there's very little research as it relates to LGBTQ populations, specifically with herpes transmission. And I actually wrote a piece a couple years ago and interviewed queer women, what it's like living with herpes in a heteronormative world and listening to their experiences of how their doctors denied them you know, testing or saying, well, we don't really have guidelines for your population right now. So this is what I, this is all I can do for you. And just kind of brushing off their experiences. And I'm like, you know what? Saying that there's a lack of research is no longer an excuse. You know, we have, we have to do better. And even in many of the research studies that exist around herpes, most of them are focused on white heterosexual women. Yeah. There is a lot to be done. (laughs) Uh, a lot but I'm very I'm so glad that you're making a change and that you're trying to impact women and I think not only women you're trying to impact people in a positive way thank you you're listening to the honest uproar a podcast where modern child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community Speaking of things that we get grief about and we're stigmatized about, you're also child-free. I am, and I have no intentions of changing that. <laughs> like most people who are child-free. Um, exactly. And so I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to ask you about your journey. Uh, how sure. did that come along? Because I mean, being from a Catholic school, I'm guessing they were telling you you needed to have a large family. Um, right. So, so tell us a little bit about that. So I am an only child and I, I say that I'm raised, I was raised more as a peer to my parents than a child. You know, obviously there were dynamics, you know, different dynamics there that, you know, my mom would take care of me and my dad would help me with things, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I always felt like I had an opinion and that they actually listened to me and I still talk to them every day. Sometimes my dad left because we butt heads, but in any event. Um, it was probably around my early 20s. Like I, I never felt, I never felt an urge to have kids or, you know, I, I, saw, I would think about a family and I'm like, eh, you know, it, it wasn't exciting to me. 
And it was probably when I was in my early 20s and I was, I would go up to my cousins in Buffalo and I'd visit and hang out with the kids and the family and I'd become one of them. And I loved it, loved hanging out with them all, but it never felt like something that was meant for me. And so I, I started saying things like, I don't want kids. And you know, I get the, well, you'll, you'll change your mind or you just wait until you marry the right guy and everything will change. Mm-hmm. And as I grew older, you know, with each year, that view became more, it became strengthened. And, you know, when I got my herpes diagnosis, a common question is, you know, can I still have kids? And even then that question popped in my mind, but it was still framed around, I don't really want kids, but like, could I still have them if I did want them? Like, is that a thing, you know? And so when I moved, I moved to Philadelphia three years ago. And that's really when my belief solidified. I'm like, I definitely don't want kids. Like I'm a very busy, I have, I lead a very busy, active life and I like my life. I like the way I live it and lead it. And I don't want to change that. And there's so much freedom in knowing that I don't have to, but so many Uber drivers, obviously before COVID would drop me off at my apartment and say, Oh, you must, your husband must have a really great job. One, how do you know I even have a husband or a partner? Two, how, how do you know that I don't afford this myself? And then when I go on to say, you know, they're like, oh, well, do you have kids? And I'm like, no, and I don't want them. And they're like, you'll change your mind. And I'm like, you are my Uber driver who's driving me from point A to point B in eight minutes. What do you know about my life? <laughs> I know. We get so much unsolicited advice. Oh my gosh, all the time. And it's just, um, I read the, the Child Free by Choice book uh, by... Blackstone, I think the last name is. Amy Blackstone, yes. Yes. And I felt so seen when I read that. I was like, wow, someone gets it. And I, through Instagram, which is, you know, we've talked about how great of a platform and learning force it is. I've really come to see, you know, the child-free life as I've adopted it into my identity. And I see that so many other people, I feel so empowered by so many other people who see, who see me and who see that life and feel seen. Yeah. And it also, sometimes I do speak to it in my work. It's not as often, but I will put it out there because so many people, you know, as we spoke about earlier, as women, we have so many roles and performances we're expected to attend. You don't have to attend this one. And I think there's so much freedom in seeing someone, especially with a larger social media following, giving you permission to say, hey, here's another way to think about life and what you've been told. You know, you don't have to take it, but it's something to sit with. And even with my friends, you know, a lot of my friends are getting married and having kids. And my one friend just had her second, her second child who I just saw recently. And I love those kids to death. We'll play with them all day long. But when I left, I'm like, oh my gosh, back to my own, back to my own space with my cat and my free time and ability to do what I want. Yeah. But it's, it's really become, like I said, solidified in my identity and something that I'm really proud of and happy to share. Yeah. There's just the fact that you understand, like not you, but anyone understands that it is a choice. That's the most important thing. I mean, whatever you choose afterwards is up to you because in the end it's your life. But there's so many women who don't know that that's a choice. And that's what's really scary Um, because we've been like, our conditioning is so strongly focused towards that role. You know, you're a woman, you have a womb, therefore you're going to become a mother. Right. That um, breaking off that um, breaking off of that 
what is expected of us is very hard for many women. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, and, and would you, I mean, I hear you say that you grew up in this family. I mean, your parents have been very um, supportive. Um, so I'm guessing that they are okay with the whole being, you being child-free. Is that correct? They joke, they joke about me. Um, like I said, you know, when I saw my friend's babies, my mom's like, look, here's a picture of Emily. You never thought, you know, you'd see she's holding a baby. So now they joke about it and they call my, you know, they call my cat their granddaughter and, you know, and they're totally, they're totally fine. Yeah. Um, and very, like very supportive. They've always been very supportive of my work, um, you know, and especially because it's very unique mm-hmm. and because I am so public with my herpes status and what I do, it's, I don't want to say it's not, it's not easy all the time to communicate with them how much their support is appreciated in a world that constantly tells you that you're trying to do it wrong. Yeah. Or that, you know, you're not worthy. Because I, I do have family members that have kind of not written me off, but have given me a, you know, with all due respect, I don't respect this kind of thing. Yeah. With all due respect, I don't respect this. So it's, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's basically an F <laughs> you, you know? Yeah, it's, um, it's, I mean, I understand. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes we can get these comments and and what I was I was telling one of my clients the other day was if you understand that some people who are telling you things like this really don't get it they really don't understand like it's so embedded in their heads that women have to become mothers that they don't get it and you just treat that with like compassion and love it'll affect you a lot less than if you just kind of like go against them all gung-ho and you know Right. Uh, it's sometimes it it's, it's not, I was going to say sometimes it's just not worth that fight. And interestingly, I, one of my friends who's also a massage therapist and that's how I met her. We always talk about our child-free life because she's, she's in her mid forties and you know, I'm in I'm 27 and a half and mm-hmm. she's like, well, you know, when did you know? And how did you know? And we, we talk about that all the time, but something else she said that I thought was very impactful. She's like, you know, she's like, of all the people to be, to have kids, you know, she's like, you should act, you would actually be someone who would be raising a great human. And I agree with that. I think, you know, if I were to have kids, I I think I would be a great mother, but I think something in society that needs to shift is perhaps our impact on children isn't necessitated to the role of mother. You know, there are so many other roles you could play as aunt, as educator, you know, I'm impacting so many people just through social media alone. That, like it's just what we've been talking about we don't have to define ourselves to this one label or to that one life yeah absolutely and i was going to say there is this many people think that child-free people everyone who's child-free hates kids and of course it's not the case like you mentioned already that you love being around kids you were actually thinking about being a second grade teacher um, yes exactly which i think is kind of funny now when i think back to it you know yeah but i don't know are. if i could do it now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, I don't, I wouldn't have the patience to, the patience to do yeah. it. I, I think teachers are like, oh my God, they just have to have a lot of like patience and, and, and just being just have to be now. strong. I know. I have a friend, she's, a, she's also child-free and she's like a pre-K teacher and she loves being with her kids. And I also, there's a lot of teachers who are child-free actually. There's a bunch of interesting. Them. Yeah, but I I know well I'm talking specifically about my friend because she she tells me how much she loves her job and how much she loves hanging out with this five, four or five year old kids. But when she comes home, she's glad she doesn't have to deal with 
kids anymore on even weekends because it just takes so much energy out of her. Right. Because she loves it. Really, and, really. and, you know, being a parent, you know, what you told me about what your um, massage therapist tells you, you know, that's actually a bingo, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because, and this is something that I've said so many times, and I don't, I will keep repeating it as, because I think it's, it's so true. And I, it's that the fact that childhood people put a lot more thought in their choice than most parents do in theirs. Right. I believe. And, and I think that, you know, having that I consciousness, I know. And I think that being conscious of, you know, how important or how difficult or how challenging or whatever other word you want to insert that role of being a parent is, and maybe I don't want it. I don't want it for whatever reason. All reasons are valid. Um, that makes us, I think, humans who can have, you know, this level of self-reflection that is high enough for us to understand that, you know, this is not for me. And maybe that's right. why people tell us, oh, you should definitely parent. You would be such a great mom. I've, I've gotten that as well. Uh, <laughs> but it's not in my interest. <laughs> you right. Know? So I tell people, maybe I would be a good parent. I think I would, but I don't want to. Exactly. And it's, you know, I, I was just thinking now in our exchange, you know, I wonder if I asked, you know, different parents, you know, from all subsets of life, you know, their reason for having children. I wonder, you know, would we question any of them the way that child-free people are questioned? Would we interrogate them? Would we not stop until we got an answer or, or in their case, you know, the answer that they're looking for from us, you know, like what their, their answers are seen as valid, even if it's just, well, it's the next step. But for us, like you said, if we have this deep awareness of self and of our journey and who we are and want to be in this world and how we show up and, you know, we could make the best case in the world and still be told that's not good enough. Absolutely. And then there's this thing that we always get told, you know, childhood people, you're selfish. And I've, I've been saying for a long time, we're not selfish. We're self-aware, self-aware. Yes. Know when we understand that this is not the thing for us. Why would you want me to bring a child into this world if I don't want the child? Want one. Exactly. That makes no sense, you know, <laughs> for the child. If you're really concerned about the child's well-being. Right. And it's just, sense. you know, I, I hate to keep putting child-free versus parents against one another because I, I don't, you know, think in that manner necessarily. You know, I don't want to put good against evil kind of thing or label them in that way. But I, there, I think it was in Blackstone's book where she says, you know, child-free people or not child-free people, but parents, you know, who say they just want a mini me, that's a, that's a selfish reasoning for parenting, you know, to have a mini version of yourself. And I often think that sometimes parents parent in parenting their own child, they're really parenting the inner child wounds that they still carry in some sense, not every parent, but I think oftentimes that can happen. Yeah. And I agree with you. It's not about polarizing the subject to make us be the good ones and the parents be the bad ones, because right. there are a lot of parents who are very supportive of, ch of childhood people and they're very yeah. happy, you know, being parents and they're very happy having their children and raising them and they're like invested and they're good parents. Right. And at the same time, they're like, you're child free. Good for you. That's awesome. Exactly. And I think and I have girlfriends like that and I'm very thankful for them. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I also have friends like that, thankfully. Um, and, and my family is coming around. So the beginning, it was a little bit of shock for them. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the thing about that is, I th we were talking about this uh, with the child-free girls the other day, and it's, 
how people who are comfortable in their own life and they're comfortable with the, what they have chosen don't usually criticize other people's choices. They don't care. Right. It's their lives, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, being child-free is, for me, it's amazing. And I, I hear you say, you know, you're happy as well. And I really want to know what is about your child-free life that excites you the most? I love my independence and the ability to do what I want when I want. And it, you know, like, you know, if I want to go take a yoga class, if I want to read a book in bed all day and not move from my apartment and just hang with my cat and indulge in, you know, a cup of coffee and some reruns of sex in the city, I can, you know, I'm, I'm not obligated to care for another human or put their desires above mine. And, you know, I currently don't have a partner right now. Um, and I'm, I'm just really, I really enjoy spending time with myself. My solitude is really important to me. And that's something that I've always appreciated, but especially during COVID and having everything, you know, at once in my apartment, having it become my gym, my home office, my school classroom, my yoga studio, and a mix of other things. I really understand how much this space is my sanctuary and as much of a mental sanctuary as a physical space to just zen out. Um, but I just, I don't know how to put happiness into words in that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely understand. It is about freedom, right? That's the choice. Yeah, it just, it just feels very, I feel most myself. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Um, now that you mentioned, you said you're not with a partner right now, but now that you mentioned having a partner, I'm wondering in your experience, what, what is more difficult to talk to your partner about being child-free or having herpes? Uh, having herpes isn't really a big deal to me anymore, especially because I'm public about it and it's like very entwined into my work. Because you could do a simple Google search and find out like, oh, this girl does something with STIs or this girl has herpes because it's out there. So that isn't really a thing to me anymore. I mean, obviously I still disclose, but most people are like, oh, I know. So I'd say probably the child-free thing because I still think it's it's still stigmatized in our society and it's not necessarily what you'd expect. Um, I feel like people, especially around my age, you know, late 20s, early 30s, this is the time when everyone quote unquote settles down, gets married, has kids, um, and supposedly, you know, has that pressure and the biological clock ticking. So mm -hmm. I think that can be more of a shocker than at least in my experience than the herpes piece. That's really interesting. And do you have like any advice for people who want to disclose to their partners of not being child-free, but about being having an STI? I think so something that I've really driven home recently is, you know, whether your disclosure happens via text or email or in person, I think as long as it happens, that's the important piece. Um, you know, be authentic in yourself, know that you can give them resources and provide, you know, different YouTube videos or links to articles, but it's never your responsibility to be the sole educator of someone who likely doesn't have much knowledge around STIs. And it's never your job to convince someone to be sexual with you. That's, you know, we should never have to convince anyone to be sexual with us in any capacity. That's very powerful. Thank you so much, Emily. I really Thank appreciate you. you being here. And it was just such a nice talk and so interesting 
Uh, thanks for coming to my show. Thank you so much for having me. I love chatting with you. Awesome. Before I let you go, um, is there anything you would like to add to your interview? Anything you want to tell my audience? No, I think I'm good. I think we covered a really wide array of topics and I like how they all kind of weave together. I'm also happy, you know, that we kind of touched on a bunch of things. So firecrackers, if you want more information, you're going to have to follow Emily on Instagram at sexeleducation. Yes. Sex, sexel education. How do you pronounce that? So it's, so what it is, it's my, it's my initials and sex ed. So it's sex E-L-D education. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, I'm going to leave you guys her link, the link to Emily's Instagram on the description of this episode below. And as, do you have a website? I do. So you can find me on emilydepass.com and I can um, send that to you as well. Awesome. I will also link that on the description of this episode so you can check it out and see what Emily posts because it's very interesting and it is absolutely educational. So thanks again for your time, Emily. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.